With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Darkcast Network. Welcome to the dark side of podcasting. Hey, hey, welcome back to Autumn's Oddities. I'm Autumn. Today, no business really. I had a long weekend. <laughs> um, not for like a fun reason. It was work. Um, an unpleasant, an unpleasant experience. Nothing to do with my employer. Just, you know. Not not the best experience. Not going to go into it in case by some small miracle, um, the people that I'm talking about happen to listen. I highly doubt, doubt that, but you know, just in case. Uh, today, I'm sticking close to home with a topic that I stumbled across months ago, like maybe even about a year ago. I just could not get the research together. Writer's block, you are my bitch lover. Let's get right into it. Um, Anyone who travels through Appalachia knows that it can be a long journey. The back roads dip through hollers and wind round mountains with endless offshoots of narrow roads that disappear into the rolling hills. This isolation is a distinguishing feature of the Appalachian Mountains that has held shape much of the region's culture and the legacy of granny witches as faith healers. When you live at least a 30-minute drive from town, self-reliance becomes a critical part of survival. Appalachia is made up of 423 counties across 13 states and spans 206,000 square miles. 206,000, yeah, that's right, square miles. (laughs) You know me in numbers. From southern New York to northern Mississippi, it's big. It ain't small, it's big. The region's 26 million residents live in parts of Alabama, Georgia, Kentucky, Maryland, Mississippi, New York, North Carolina, Ohio, Pennsylvania, South Carolina, Tennessee, Virginia, and the whole entire damn state of West Virginia. It's a region with rich culture, food, and music, and its people tend to be tightly knit in their communities. 
This massive mountain range wasn't created overnight. It took the Earth quite a bit of doing to make the region. I'm going to get into the science behind how mountains form. Gather around, children. Sometimes an entire ocean closes as tectonic plates converge, causing blocks of thick continental crust to collide. A collisional mountain range forms as the crust is compressed, crumpled, and thickens even more. The effect is kind of like a swimmer putting a beach ball under their belly. The swimmer will rise up considerably out of the water just from the force of something pushing from underneath. The highest mountains on Earth today, the Himalayas, are so high because the full thickness of the Indian subcontinent is pushing up underneath it in, in way, by way of Asia. Yeah, science, right? It's interesting. The Appalachian Mountains formed during a collision of continents 500 to 300 million years ago. In their prime, they probably had peaks as high as those in the modern zone of continental collision stretching from the Himalayas in Asia to the Alps in Europe. But over the past 300 million years, the Appalachians have eroded to much more modest heights. You know, they don't want to show off. The terrain can be rough in parts and seems very secluded from the rest of the world, kind of like the land that time forgot. Appalachian residents learned to be skeptical of outsiders early on, as they had their very valuable resources, such as timber and coal. There's a lot of coal mining in the region, fracking for natural gas, you know, the worst things that you could possibly do to a region. That's why there has been so, so much flooding uh, in recent years. Like, eastern Kentucky just keeps getting ravaged by flooding. Yeah. And all of this was stolen for them or bought, of course, for just pennies on the dollar, because why pay someone a fair price? Native Americans living in the region had their land stolen as well from early settlers. So the region is no stranger to having outsiders confiscate what's theirs. The history of Appalachia itself is the history of the granny witchcraft tradi tradition. And although the name is relatively new, the customs go back a very long time. A combination of folk magic, faith healing, and superstitions, granny magic, which I just love, was often the only source of medical aid for people in remote regions, such as Appalachia. As European settlers arrived in the colonies during the 18th century, they brought with them the traditional folk magic and the healing modalities of their home countries. That's what happens when people immigrate. They bring their traditions, they bring their beliefs, and eventually it all ends up being interwoven into other cultures. Primarily women, these healers used the concepts they learned in Scotland, England, and Ireland. Once they settled in, they met their Native American neighbors who taught them about the plants, roots, and leaves that were indigenous to the mountains of North Carolina, Tennessee, and various other parts of Appalachia that could be used to heal different ailments. They also blended their practice with German immigrants who arrived in Pennsylvania later on and began migrating south and west. Soon they began incorporating the knowledge brought to the mountains by people of African descent escaping enslavement in the south. So just an amalgamation of different cultures, beliefs, religions, medical practices are all converging in this one region and out of it comes granny witches.
Traditional granny magic included a lot of different practices, like I said. Uh, dousing, which is the practice of looking for water with a forked stick or a length of copper, was a pretty valuable skill to have if your neighbors needed to dig a new well. That can also be used in paranormal research. Um, I read a paper on it, just kind of debunking <laughs> how it works. Um, I'm not going to get into it. Maybe in another episode, we'll do like debunking commonly used um, paranormal tools. Practitioners often tended to the needs of women, you know, underserved. They worked as midwives and assisted in the birth of babies, but could also be counted on to provide herbal remedies if a young woman did not want to become pregnant. I don't, that also very fascinating. I don't know what they could have possibly used for birth control back then. Um, yeah, I'd like to read more about that as well. In areas that rarely had access to professional medical care, the granny witch worked as a healer. They made poultices and salves and teas, all with healing properties, or so they claimed. Divination could be done in the remains of tea or coffee grounds at the bottom of a cup, a la Harry Potter. You know, he sees the grim in the bottom of the cup. In 1908, John C. Campbell went to Appalachia to conduct a study of living conditions in the mountains. The result was a book called The Southern Highlander and His Homeland. And according to Campbell, one may become a grandmother young in the mountains. If she has survived the labor and tribulation of her younger days, has gained a freedom and a place of irresponsible authority. I don't know what the hell that means. That's a quote, irresponsible authority in the home, hardly rivaled by the men of the family. In sickness, she is the first to be consulted, for she is generally something of an herb doctor, and her advice is sought by the young people of half the countryside in all things, from a love affair to putting a new web in the loom. And sidebar, if I had been alive back then, I would have most definitely been a granny witch, and I would have probably, you know, been burned at the stake or something like that. The roots of it are deep and familial, passed down from generations of Appalachian mountain women. Out of both necessity and pragmatism, women used what they had on hand to cure ills, tend to the dying, and to deliver babies in their community. Appalachian folk magic is both medicine and midwifery, omen reading, and weatherworking. It's using keen observation, common sense, and folk ways to affect change incredibly interesting because of the religious environment of the Appalachian region you know how it is uh, in which nearly everyone was staunchly Protestant most of the people practicing what we call today you know granny magic would have disagreed <laughs> that they were doing witchcraft um, they did not believe that what they were doing was witchcraft they got the moniker later on but you know they were just healers in fact, many charms and spells included invocations of psalms, prayers, and verses from the Bible. So they were also weaving in Christianity into this. Many of the granny magic tradition or granny, yeah, granny folk magic traditions of the mountains share some common ground with the folk magic found in other parts of the world. And that all obviously can be explained by people immigrating in and bringing with them their traditions from other countries. Depending on what part of Appalachia someone lives in and the traditions that, you know, might have been handed down from one generation to another, a practitioner of granny magic might follow a variety of practices. 
Beth Ward wrote in the long tradition of folk healing among Southern Appalachian women. It's a really good read. I have linked it in the show notes. She wrote, these women knew that catnip tea or red alder tea kept infants from getting hives. That's insane. I would have never known that. Even if I Googled it, I probably couldn't have found it. They prescribed stewed down calamus root to help soothe colic. They put sulfur in the soles of shoes to help ease flu symptoms. And if someone came to them with a bad burn, they knew that blowing smoke and chanting the right words could talk the fire out. I'm listening. I'm going to try that. Appalachian folk healing goes by many names, like I said, depending on where it's practiced in the region and who is doing the practicing. Root work, folk medicine, folk magic, and kitchen witchery are some other names. I like kitchen witchery. One granny witch referred to her own practice as hill folks hoodoo, and some southern Appalachian natives would never think to call it anything but the work of the Lord. Regardless of naming conventions, Southern Appalachian folk healing modalities using plants, prayers, herbs, and dirt to heal, heal illness, ward off evil, and protect the home reflect the vibrant cross-section of people who initially inhabited the area from West Virginia down to Mississippi. The first people to employ the use of natural Appalachian resources, coupling them with spiritual prayer and ritual, were the Cherokee and the Choctaw Native Americans. I am Cherokee. Maybe I can do this. In A Modern Appalachian Folk Healer, also linked in the show notes, Edward Green discusses how influential this indigenous knowledge was to the education of one Clarence Catfish Gray, uh, one of West Virginia's most well-known folk healers. Cash Catfish relates that his ancestors learned much of their herbal medicine from local Native Americans. And it was a Native American from North Carolina that gave Catfish real faith in the curative value of herbs. The Scots-Irish, Ulster Scots, and English rural people who carried with them a reverence for nature and an understanding of medicinal plants from the old world that far predates modern medicine came later on. Upon their arrival, they fused with the Native American methods and made a totally new thing. This early European arrival to the New World South also coincided with Europe's religious transition to Protestantism, which was a conflict that led to the violent persecution of anyone who did not adhere to the very strict prescribed Christian religious practices. So, of course, religious xenophobia, you know, saying my religion is right and nobody else's religion is right. That's what xenophobia is, is when you think only your thing is right or you're the best. Uh, it saw many non-Protestants classified in a negative light and went ahead and labeled them witches who were persecuted, even though many were just healers or herbal medicine practitioners whose philosophies were deeply rooted in spirituality and mainly nature instead of a single monotheistic deity. So kind of like early Wicca as well. We're seeing a lot of things interwoven in here. Healers of all sorts found themselves vulnerable to accusations during the witch hunts. Mm. And I think that most of us realize, um, you know, that a lot of the women who were persecuted during the witch trials were just midwives and men didn't want them having that kind of power. 
Historian Mary Kilburn Madison explains, the role of the healer was a perilous one, for people were afraid of his or her seemingly magic power over the living body. They might think that someone who could cure disease by magic could also cause it by magic. Restoring health was white magic and taking it away, black magic. So again, it's just like the the total ignorance of people. They didn't realize back then that you could use a plant. You could use some sort of a chemical like sulfur. And that could be made into either some sort of a potion. By potion, I don't mean like a magic potion, but like a tea or something like that that someone could drink. It was an herbal remedy. They just didn't know that <laughs> that anything, any outside sources could affect the body in a positive way. At the same time, a new sociological group, the single woman, was on the rise increasing from 5 to between 15 and 20% during the 16th century, with widows forming 10 to 20% of taxpayers. These newly independent spinsters and widows threatened the, you know, paternalistic society, and it's no small coincidence that women constituted 85% of those executed during witch hunts and trials. The popular belief was that witches remained unmarried because they had been seduced by the devil. So, you know, they're the devil's bride. They're Satan's bride. When really they probably just wanted to be left the F alone and for some man not to come along and impregnate them and then they die during childbirth. That's, that's more likely. In this setting, female midwives trained to assist in childbirth became very vulnerable, uh, you know, with their knowledge of procreation, fertility, and successful delivery, and most dangerously, contraception and abortion. You know, they were consulted on the most intimate aspects of people's lives, so midwives knew about a patient's adultery, any sexual problems anybody had, and they also had the earliest possible access to the newborn infants. It's obviously no small wonder that they were perceived as having the ability to cause a great deal of harm. And numerous historians have drawn attention to the many horrendous acts just perpetrated against midwives during the witch craze. Again, somebody didn't understand the ability of these women. And the midwives probably had knowledge of childbirth and, uh, you know, any sexual issues, any issues during pregnancy because they had probably been through it themselves. There was no possible way back then that men could have known anything about childbirth. You know, no one was studying women's health. No one was studying anatomy, nothing like that. So, of course, the person that would know childbirth in a woman's body best is another woman. It makes total sense. Witches were often accused of killing babies or stealing them from their mothers and handing them over to the devil. It's a tale as old as time. Midwives were often accused of the exact same offense. These stolen babies were replaced with changelings, which may have been children with birth defects, which is terrible that that's how they were explaining birth defects. They're like, well, the midwife is a witch and she's gone ahead and replaced my baby with a changeling. Isn't it convenient because the baby never disappears? So there is no proof that a baby was taken. But if the baby acts up in any way, and by acts up, I mean like cries or doesn't sleep through the night, the men in town are like, well, that midwife stole the babies and she replaced them with these terrible things and we got to burn her now. 
So a few historians have speculated that these potentially pagan practitioners, which is a word with Latin roots that simply means country dweller, later evolved into the word paganist and eventually became heathen in Christian Latin. So these people went underground or they fled to the New World where their methodologies could have been suppressed or absorbed by Christianity. What? No. Still, it's not a huge leap of logic to make. The connection between old world European pagan philosophies and the characteristics of folk healing. And in a paper by Bonnie O'Connor and David Hufford, Understanding Folk Medicine, they elaborate a little on that. Such characteristics include an interconnectedness of body, mind, and spirit, as well as elements of the mystical or supernatural. Also, treatment of illness using ritual baths, cleansing, and offerings, uh, and a presumption of the highest goodness of nature. The recitation of spoken or written charms or prayers, and also being born with a special mystical ability to heal. It's believed that a lot of women are born with that. And most of the old women's in those days, as they were called, smoked cob pipes. And you'd see them coming down the highway smoking their cob pipe with a little black bag in their hand. You see your doctor coming at you that way. The old granny doctor witch <laughs> smoking her corn cob pipe and carrying her bag. That's the only person I want treating me. That's who my, uh, my obstetrician is a granny witch. These women, like the ones mentioned above, uh, by and one Beulah Perry, a Southern Appalachian native whose interview was archived with the Foxfire Museum and Heritage Center, were the staples in Southern Appalachian communities. The healing work they did, you know, they cured the sick, they tended to the dying, they got women through labor and delivery when, you know, back then, I don't think women's odds were that great for not dying in childbirth. You know, they stand to some of the primary functions of folk medicine. A granny woman was most often a midwife, but all not all midwives were granny women. Like an Appalachian midwife, a granny woman would employ plants and herbs to help a woman through labor and delivery. But unlike a typical midwife, she may also recite a protective charm or chant to help ensure the health and survival of mother and baby. Can't hurt, right? Just saying. Families in Appalachia were often very far removed from doctor's offices, and hospitals were usually in urban city centers, which they were nowhere near. So they were just kind of isolated and cut off because of the region's rugged topography. The male physicians who would come to the more remote Appalachian communities often charged just insane prices that most people in the areas just could not afford. They were, you know, they didn't have a lot of money. Midwives, granny women, and neighbor ladies were critical in closing this gap in care. Although they received no formal medical training, they were still indispensable in their communities. They worked on a barter system rather than charging an actual monetary fee. They acted as obstetrician, pharmacist, herbalist, and nurses to Appalachian families. Really, they are just performing a service kind of out of the goodness of their hearts. They aren't getting much in return. They just don't want to see people die if they could help. Yeah. So most of them were more trusted and considered to be more effective than the city doctors who, you know, the community didn't know at all, but they knew these neighbor ladies, granny witches, midwives, what have you. They knew them. They trusted them. And most of the women were pharmacists. 
They cultivated healing herbs and they exchanged secrets of their uses with each other. And that's kind of how this got passed on. And I found a lot of good information in a book by Barbara Ehrenreich and Deirdre English. It's called Witches, Midwives, and Nurses, A History of Women Healers. They were midwives traveling from home to home and village to village. And for centuries, women were just doctors practicing without degrees. They were barred from books and lectures. They weren't allowed to go sit in. They weren't allowed to get an education. So they had to learn from each other. And they passed on the experiences that they learned from, from neighbor to neighbor, and then from mother to daughter, and so on and so forth. It just kept getting passed. The granny woman would arrive at a mother's home in labor with a bag of herbs, roots, and leaves. Again, I'm curious like what these are and if they had any sort of anesthetic effect, any sort of like antiseptic effects. They would have to. I, I just can't imagine they would do absolutely nothing. She would then use these to help the mother safely deliver a child. And then, like I said before, she might recite some sort of a Bible verse or a protective charm because, of course, at the time there was a very high infant and also mother mortality rate. Death in childbirth was incredibly common. And because mountain dwellers were typically nowhere near an office and everything was just too expensive, the granny women were the doctors. Today, there's been a resurgence in interest in the granny magic tradition, although it never really went away in Appalachia. As more people in the mountains try to hold on to their traditional customs, granny magic is becoming popular once again, although it's pretty unlikely that it will ever go mainstream. I'm all for it. Like, if if you can heal yourself naturally, I... That being said, I do think there are limitations to what uh, natural things can do. Sometimes you do have to take medicine and go to an actual doctor. Some things herbs won't fix. After all, the cultural context and awareness of Appalachian life is a key component of the practice. There are many authors that... Uh, have written on the subject like I found tons of writing and there's an official village witch of Asheville North Carolina yeah I, that's a really cool city I went to camp there in the Black Mountains for every summer for about 10 years so the village witch of Asheville her name is Sarah Amis she's also a university instructor and a practicing pagan she works hard to educate people about the traditional mountain customs and to ensure the legacy of their Appalachian, Appalachian, oh no, I just let my Kentucky out, my Appalachian ancestors. Amis said, our people don't always call this magic, and they don't always call it witchcraft. It's just what you do. If you grow up in the South, it's everywhere, but people don't always name it, not even among themselves. And that's true. I mean, I think my Nana had some like random remedies for things. One of them was bourbon, though. <laughs> She would straight up, like, that's not legal anymore. She would rub bourbon on our gums when we were teething. Uh, <laughs> I think I saw her put it on other stuff before. I saw it in her Diet Coke can plenty. R.I.P. Nana. I love you. Nobody else is like you. For much of history, the overwhelming majority of doctors were male, unsurprisingly, because women were not allowed to go sit in a university or a college lecture. Even if they were totally qualified and smarter than their male counterparts, they were not allowed, just point blank period. 
But the statistic of, you know, there being more male than female doctors has shifted in recent years with slightly more than half of all doctors today identifying as female. Fantastic. And also, sidebar, please don't ever say woman doctor. Unless it's like your OB, like I'm going to the woman doctor. Don't say woman doctor. Just say doctor. You know what I mean? Because do you say male doctor? No. Just say doctor. Thank you. That's my PSA. We don't need to put that... We don't need to put a pronoun in front of a profession. It's a profession. It doesn't need to be, you know, a woman doctor. Thank you. Women, the original healers in many cultures, have overcome centuries of being accused of witchcraft by the church when attempting to practice any sort of healing arts to reclaim their place in medicine. Thank, thankfully, truly. So, are you a granny witch? Do you know anyone who practices herbal remedies, maybe in the Appalachian tradition? Uh, I'm from the region. I don't really do any of that, to be honest with you. As close as I've come to herbal remedies is taking a daily multivitamin. I find it fascinating, though. I do truly love to be in nature. I love to be in the mountains. Uh, I find the concept of midwives to be very intriguing. I didn't use a midwife, um, but I do see the appeal of them. I will be quite honest. If you have done a home birth, bravo to you. You are brave. You are much braver than me. I'm like, no, my old ass is going to a hospital because I'm afraid that something's going to go real wrong just because of my age. And, you know, I don't want to be at home and and responsible for that if something happens. But kudos to you if you had the guts to do that. Um, I don't. I like to be medicated uh, during labor. <laughs> I don't want to feel a damn thing. And again, kudos to you if you had the guts to suffer through feeling all of childbirth, because I sure as hell did not. But I admire greatly anyone who did. Yeah, I just didn't want to. I'm like, man, I don't need to feel all that. Uh, yeah, I, I'm just trying to think of like my, the women in my family, most of the women in my family aren't healers. Most of the women in my family are more like a seer. Everybody sees spirits. Um, I don't know that they speak to them or anything like that, but most of us, if not all, see things, have seen things, are more prone to paranormal activities happening around us or at least you know us noticing them I but we also aren't from like Appalachia 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 is eastern Kentucky I grew up in central Kentucky yeah like dead center a little not like north but like center center I grew up in Lexington which is yeah central and eastern Kentucky is where the Appalachian region is it's beautiful and I spent a lot of time in that region in Asheville in a lot of different parts of Appalachia and I've hiked various parts of it I just don't really think my family you know has the healing granny witch kitchen witch you know lineage to pass down my nana she was a hell of a good cook. So I guess we could call her a kitchen witch. But no, none of, nobody in my family was doing like herbal remedies or, you know, chew this leaf to relieve this pain or so on and so forth. I, I think every woman in my family had their children in a hospital. But again, they lived in cities. So Lexington, even though it's a small town for Kentucky, it's like it's a city. 
people go there to go to the mall, like to go out. It's like a city. And Louisville is all the way west. So fewer people from the, you know, smaller regions of eastern Kentucky or southern Kentucky come up to Louisville. They'll typically go to Lexington. Everything you never thought you wanted to know about Kentucky and where I'm from. But if you do practice any sort of herbal witchery, I would be interested to hear about it. I wish that I was, you know, more into that stuff. Just for convenience, I kind of, you know, I take the easy road sometimes and use the modern conveniences, even though I'm trying to be a little more cognizant of what I eat and what I put on my body because, you know, your skin absorbs what you put on your body. And I realized, oh, God, I'm using a lot of chemicals, like an insane amount of chemicals. And some of them are carcinogens, meaning they cause cancer. So maybe I should be a little more like my Appalachian female granny witch ancestors and uh, just start like chewing leaves and rubbing them on me. Actually, I lied. I will occasionally use mint because I think um, mint and lemon and something else is what like mosquitoes hate. So I will rub that on if I can find any. Uh, so see, I am also a granny witch and you will refer to me as such. I am the high granny witch, the highest of the granny witches. Well, thank you for listening. I appreciate it. I hope you enjoyed that trek through Appalachia and through uh, Kentucky mainly, because that's really what I'm most familiar with of the region. If you like what you hear, you can hear more episodes on Tuesdays and Fridays on all podcast platforms. Uh, once again, I am asking you to please rate and review my tiny baby Granny Witch podcast and wherever, you know, wherever you listen, but preferably on one of the big ones, you know, like iTunes or what is it? Apple, Apple podcast, iTunes, Spotify, one of those, it helps the algorithm bump up so that more people get recommended this weird little show. You know, I appreciate you listening. And remember, if it's creepy and weird, you'll find it here. You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com aware. Terms apply.